0: please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. We won't cover those completely because if you're familiar with this passage, this is one of the most maybe controversial passages in one of the most controversial books there is in the Bible, so we will only cover the first three verses tonight and the next few four through six next week. Revelation 20. I want to read 1 through 6 to give you the context. So let's hear now the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such things, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to gather again on the Lord's Day and to sing your word, to read your word to hear your word and pray your word. Father, we pray that you would bless us tonight by drawing near to us and using your word to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. And Father, help us to be patient with one another as you conform us to the image of your Son. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let me begin tonight with a counseling situation that maybe some of you have encountered. Let's say a brother or sister in Christ comes to you because they're really struggling. They are despairing and frustrated with their work in evangelism. Now maybe they say something like, you know, I've prayed for my family for years, and I've shared the gospel as often as I could, and I have made no progress Time and time again, they don't listen to me. They don't want to hear it. Or maybe they come to you and say, you know what? We've been praying for this friend, this neighbor for years. And finally, I got a chance to share the gospel. And you know what? We were good friends. We were a part of each other's lives. We've been in each other's home. But as soon as I opened my mouth to talk about Jesus, they cut me off. They completely cut off the friendship. And now I have no chance to talk to them about the Lord at all. Or maybe someone comes to you and says, you know what, I am really struggling. Because I feel like the church, in a way, is is kind of a lost cause. Every day I look into the world and I see the world grow more and more hostile to Christianity. More hostile to the gospel and to everything we hold dear as Christians. And it feels, at least from my perspective, that more people are walking away from the church than are walking into the church. And they say, well, I just feel hopeless. It's getting harder and harder to pray for the lost and to share the gospel. Because I just feel like nothing will ever change. You ever been there? Maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe some of you have talked to brothers and sisters who are there. I'm curious, what would you say to someone like that? Where would you take them in God's word for hope and encouragement? Would you go to the Gospel of Matthew, the end of the Gospel, to the Great Commission, where God tells us to make disciples? But then Jesus also says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm in charge, and by the way, I am with you. That'll give you fuel for evangelism. Or do you go to the book of Acts, and show time and time again God's incredible faithfulness to work through sinful, even foolish disciples at times? To build his church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. These are great places to go by the way and there are many other places in scripture I think you could go to comfort someone in this struggle. But I wonder how many of us would turn to Revelation 20 and talk about the millennium. I wonder if any of us would encourage our brothers and sisters by saying look because of Christ Satan is bound. He can't deceive the nations anymore, which means the church is essentially invincible. It's unstoppable in its ministry. The Great Commission will be complete. It's never hopeless. Christ is on his throne, which means that he will keep his promise to build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I bet some of us will probably say those things. I don't know if we would turn to Revelation 20 to talk about it, though, because this passage is, like I said, pretty controversial to some. There's a lot of misconceptions about the millennium, and sadly, people stay away from it. I think it's incredibly sad, because this passage, this whole section about the millennium, is an incredible incentive to personal evangelism. It gives us great hope. And great peace as we try to share the gospel and we get rejected or we get persecuted and we seem like we make no progress at all. This passage gives us hope. And I've been praying as we spend two weeks in these six verses, we would find that great hope and peace. We would really trust that Christ will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what this passage really teaches Now, in order to see that great hope and to remember that, I want to answer two questions for tonight. There will be at least three or four in this whole section, but the first two are essentially this. Simply, when does the millennium occur? When does the millennium occur? That's kind of verses 1 and part of verse 2. And then second, what does it mean to have Satan bound during the millennium, during that thousand-year reign? Now, I said, next week we'll deal with verses 4 through 6, which talks really more about the millennial reign of Christ and what that looks like. But these are going to be the focus today, really what and when is the millennium, and then what are we talking about with Satan being bound. So first, let's talk about when the millennium occurs. When does this thousand-year reign occurs? Now, you'll notice as we've gone through Revelation, we often don't use a whole lot of categories and titles and labels because we want to show you what the text says. and That's really important that we do that. We will do that. But I think because of the controversy here, I want to at least put some of those categories before you. So historically, there have been at least four common answers to this question. When does the millennium occur? And the first two are in a category known as pre-millennialism. We know what pre means, right? Pre-millennial, before the millennium. They believe that Christ will return before the millennium. Now, historic premillennialism believes that tribulation for the church will increase over time. It will increase to the point where it will get really bad, and then Christ will return. And then when Christ returns, he will raise the Christians from the dead, and there will be a literal reign on earth. Now, with historic premillennialism, there's some debate on whether it's a thousand years, literally, or whether it's just a long period of time. But essentially once that reign is over, that thousand year period or period of time, the end of the millennium will come when Satan rises up and Christ defeats him and then there's judgment and then the eternal state. Now, that may sound pretty familiar to most of us. I'll bet most of us are familiar with a variation of that known as dispensational premillennialism. That's wildly popular in our day, isn't it? Mainly, I think, because of the Left Behind series, if you've ever read that or the ministry of John MacArthur, which is not too far from here, and a lot of the seminaries that were around. They teach this dispensational premillennialism. And it's very similar, but there's a few distinctives. The dispensational version believes that there's kind of a two-stage return of Christ. That Christ comes in a secret rapture first, takes the Christians out of the world, takes his church out of the world, which means the world just falls apart. And then at that point, the Jews repent, And that's one of the big distinctives of the dispensational version. There's a very distinct line between the church and then the Jewish ethnic nation of Israel. And then once that happens, then Christ will return again with his saints after a period of tribulation. And then there will be a literal millennium on earth. This group is very literal. Definitely a thousand years. They think often that it will be an actual throne in Jerusalem. There are some dispensationalists who believe that the sacrificial system will be restarted as well. So, very literal picture of what Revelation teaches. But then at the end of that thousand years, Satan will rebel, there will be a battle, and then judgment, and then the eternal state. So, those sound familiar to do. That's the premillennial category. Now, the other two groups fall into what's known as post millennial. You probably figure out what that means too, right? Post meaning after. So Christ returns after the millennium. Now the version we might be used to hearing is that the post-millennial has an optimistic view of history. This is a little bit older than some of these views, especially the dispensational version. But it's an optimistic view of history in this. They believe as the church expands to the ends of the earth, the world becomes more Christianized. The world gets better and better because the people of God are are all over the place and it becomes more and more holy. And eventually that church age, where the gospel goes into the earth, blends into this millennial kingdom. And for post-millennialists, that literal kingdom is not a thousand year literal reign. It's not even a literal earthly reign. It's more of a heavenly reign. Christ on his throne in heaven, which does have an impact on earth. But it really is a spiritual reign. And then one day Christ will return after that you know, period of time. And then that's when the end will come. So for a post-millennialist, it's history gets better. And then Christ comes. And then there will be judgment and the end eternal state. Now there's another view, another variation of that called amillennialism. millennialism, And that means no millennium, which is really unfortunate. Because it's not that amillennialists believe in no Millennium at all. They just don't believe in a literal earthly millennium in the sense that, especially the pre mill version of that, is. Now, like post millennialism, they believe in a spiritual reign. Christ reigns right now, actually. The thousand year period is actually the time between Christ's first and second coming. That's the whole millennium right there. It's that whole age, it's a spiritual reign of Christ. And when Christ returns, that will basically be the end. That will be the defeat of Satan and judgment as well. Now the difference between Amil and Postmill in general is that Amil has a little bit less of an optimistic view of history. They don't believe things are going to get better and better. They actually believe that evil is going to grow worse and worse. Evil will grow almost essentially alongside of the church. Satan will continue to persecute the church but not destroy her. In the end, and the end of that millennium is when Satan rises up and of course Christ comes to defeat them. So history gets worse for the mill, and then the church grows alongside of evil and then Christ comes and sets all things right. Now, if that didn't make your head spin, to be completely honest, if you've been following us through Revelation, you've received an millennial perspective on this book. Now I don't say that because we just love the name, or we love the category and the people that are in that category. It's not why we chose to be millennial. We believe that's what the scripture teaches. In fact, like I said, that's why we haven't used the label all that much, is because we want to show you what the Bible says. But it does fit very clearly into that category. And as we study the millennium, you need to remember, this is the only place, please hear me, the only place in Scripture, that explicitly teaches about the millennium. There's some other texts that may be related, but this is the only explicit place where we have teaching on what the millennium is, which means it's not an essential gospel issue. It's not like the Trinity, it's not like Christology. This is something that's important, but it's not as essential as those. And so we need to have room for disagreement here. We need to hold our views humbly and lightly and be okay, because there are a lot of great men that I respect, a lot of pastors and and scholars that have different views on this. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian, by the way. I do believe they're wrong in this, but it doesn't mean they're not brothers in the faith. Now, at the end of the day, even though I said this is not a gospel issue, please don't hear me say this is not important. (laughs) Don't hear that. This is a very important issue, and we need to decide what the text says. So let's look at chapter 20, verse 1, and see when the millennium occurs from the text. So look at verse 1 with me. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. So there it is. There's the millennium. There's that thousand year period we're talking about. Now that first word then in verse 1 for a premillennialist. They see that then as a chronological statement. They see that as then this happened. If you remember in chapter 19 last week when Jason was talking about this text. Chapter 19 ends with Christ's return. Christ return, and there's judgment, right? So they see the then, and they're like, Oh, Christ returns, then the millennium. See the pre-millennial? They see that very clearly, and that makes sense looking at the text. There's just a couple of really big problems with that. Then, in Revelation, doesn't always mean then this happened, especially a then like this, which is, then I saw. Then I saw. We've seen this as the way that John essentially begins every new cycle. In chapter 4, it's then I saw a door. Chapter 12, then I saw a sign. In chapter 15, then I saw a sign. Chapter 17, then I saw a woman. And then now here in chapter 20, then I saw an angel. If you want more details on those cycles, go back and listen to Jason's sermon a couple weeks ago. That was really a helpful overview of all this. So this then, in 20 verse 1, is not a chronological statement. It's merely a transition. It's merely John saying, then I saw this, not then this happened. Now, that's not the only reason I believe that this is not chronological. The bigger problem with seeing this chronologically is really who is being deceived in chapter 20. Look with me at chapter 19, the very last verse. Chapter 19, right at the very end. This is right after the beast. And the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire in in verse 20. Look what 21 says. And the rest... Rest of what? Those are the rest of the enemies of God. Those that were listed out in verses 17 and 18. Those that sided with the beast that were thrown into the lake of fire. The rest were killed with the sword. Which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. You see the picture here? All the enemies of God. No one's left out from this. It's completely comprehensive. All the enemies of God are destroyed. They are the feast, as Jason said last week, at the end for these birds. And so in chapter 20, verse 3, look at that one. Verse 3 it says, and then the angel here, the angel threw him, that's Satan, into the abyss and shut it. And sealed it over him. Why did he do that? So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Now, the question here is if all the nations were destroyed in chapter 19, who is left to be deceived in chapter 20? If we're seeing this chronologically, then why in the world does Satan need to be bound up to be kept from deceiving the nations? There's no nations left. See the problem here? That's why I don't think this is a chronological statement. This is just the next cycle. The next set of visions. And we know that because this follows the same pattern as all the visions. The last, all the visions end with kind of this great battle and final judgment. That's how chapter 19 ends. Guess how chapter 20 ends? In verse 7 and on, great battle. And then all the way to the end, we have final judgment. And so what do we have in this little section right in the beginning that describes the millennium? We have the beginning of a new cycle. We have the beginning of the cycle that describes the time from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming. And that's what chapter 20 is all about. We get further proof of this, by the way, in verse 1 with this image of a key. Look at the middle of verse 1. The angel is holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. And we've seen that key before, haven't we? That Christ is given a key. In the very beginning of Revelation, right after his resurrection, Revelation one eighteen, the risen Lord says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. That's Christ saying, now I have all authority in heaven on earth. I'm in charge, I'm on the throne, I am ruling over this world. Which is what he says right before his ascension. So I hope you can see here this millennium rule, this millennial rule of Christ is the church age. It's right now. It's the time from his first to second coming. It's really the time period that is described in each of the cycles. We're just getting a new angle here. It's a new picture, a new image that describes what we've seen so many times in Revelation. Once again describing what Christ is doing in this world. Now it probably even goes without mention that the millennium is definitely not a literal thousand years. I think if, it, if you saw it as a literal thousand years, you have to make an incredible case for it. Because it is literally the first literal number in the book, if that's the case. Think about that. 144,000, 1260, times, time, and half a times, the 200 million troops, all the sevens, all the fours, all the tens, all symbolic, except one number? And not just one number, 1,000, it's filled with a passage that's full of symbols. Jesus didn't literally get the key to hell. Satan isn't literally a dragon bound by a chain. These are all symbols, right? Plus, look, John told us this from the beginning. Uh, We've been saying this, we're not going to be able to say it much longer, we're almost done with this book. But John told us from the very first chapter, this is a book of signs and symbols. And you can go back and listen to the first sermon in this whole series, maybe a year ago now, to get a review on that if you need to. So don't believe the accusations. You might hear at times that people that take an amillennial or postmillennial view of the millennium are just not taking the Bible seriously. Because they're not interpreting it literally, they don't care about the Bible. That's not true. We're interpreting it as John has told us to interpret it, as apocalyptic literature. And if that wasn't enough for you, 1,000 years is used symbolically in other places in Scripture. I'm sure you know this verse, Psalm 50, verse 10. It says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean that, okay, these thousand hills are God, and that thousand and one hill is not God's? No, that's a big number describing all that God owns. So this thousand years is a symbol for a complete or extended length of time. I hope that's clear, because we're going to build on that for these next couple weeks. So, when does the millennium occur? Right now. As Christ is on his throne in heaven... It's the whole church age. And it will end when Christ comes back and sets all things right. Question number two. What does it mean to have Satan bound? Bound then for that thousand years. We see that binding in verse two. Look at verse two with me. And he, that's the angel again, verse one, sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is typically where people have a really hard time with amillennialism. Because they'll tell you, well, you're saying the millennium is now, right? Yep. So Satan is bound right now. Yep. Well, then why in the world is the world such a mess? Why in the world is, is things so bad out there? It doesn't look like Satan is bound at all. It looks like he has free reign. It looks like evil is everywhere. And that's an excellent question. But John gives us the answer right in the next verse. He tells us what he means by saying that Satan is bound. What's the purpose of the binding? Look at verse 3. And threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Why? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be released for a little while. You see what John is saying here? John's saying, no, Satan is not bound in every sense. He's not completely inactive in this world. That's not what he's saying. He is still very active, still tempting and deceiving, still assaulting God's church. We saw that through all the cycles, especially through the beast. He still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But what John is saying He's bound in the sense where he can't deceive the nations any longer. What does that mean? I think it actually has to do with two particular things. First is he can't gather the nations together to destroy the church. Because guess what happens as soon as he was released from the binding? That's exactly what he does. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 towards the end of the passage, or in the middle of the passage there. And when the thousand years were ended, when the binding's done, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Okay, so we're going to see what that deception entails. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround, listen, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Who's that? That's the church, isn't it? So during the millennium, Satan is kept from uniting the nations together to just seek and destroy the church. That doesn't mean he won't persecute the church. It doesn't mean he doesn't do terrible things and tempt us and use his beast to do horrible things to the church. But the bottom line is he's bound from wiping her out completely. Brothers and sisters, don't you see if this hasn't happened... The church would have been gone a long time ago. A long time ago. The second reason, the second way the nations are deceived, the nations will no longer be deceived because they'll finally be receiving the gospel and be able to come to Christ. It's the picture here of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.12. When he talks about the Gentiles being separate from Christ. Christ excluded from the commonwealth of israel strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world and listen to the change but now now that exclusion is over but now in christ jesus you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ Paul says it this way in Acts 14 and 17, essentially saying, look, the Gentiles, the time of ignorance is past. Now God commands everywhere to repent. And so the binding of Satan is so that the gospel gets out, so that it calls the world to repentance, and the gospel gets to the end of the earth. That's the picture here. Now let me show you a couple more passages. Keep your finger here and turn to Mark. Mark chapter 3. For a moment, Mark chapter 3, I want you to hear it from Jesus' own words when he talks about his own ministry in Mark chapter 3. Obviously, this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the part of Jesus' ministry where he's healing a lot of people. He's just been accused, we'll see that partly in this passage, by the scribes of being possessed by a demon. And that's why he has this power to cast out demons. Now Jesus answers their question and shows how foolish that idea is. But I want you to listen to how he summarizes what he's come to do to Satan. Mark chapter 3 verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It makes no sense. Why would I want to cast out Satan if I'm Satan? And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now listen to verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man same word used in revelation he's bound up satan he's the strong man here then indeed he may plunder his house you see what jesus is saying about his ministry it's not just that i'm not satan i have come to bind up satan to lock him away as with a key like the picture in revelation i have come to take back this world so that the gospel can go out and people can believe. I bound up the strong man so I can plunder his house. In John 12, verse 31, Jesus says it this way. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Another picture like being bound up, right? Getting rid of Satan. Why? When I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. See what Jesus is saying? I have bound Satan up. I have cast him out. Why? To draw the nations to me. To pull the people of God in the world to these nations into the church. That's what he's doing right now in his ministry. That's the millennium. Beginning in Christ's ministry. Look at one more passage. Luke chapter 10. Another passage talking about the ministry this time of Jesus' disciples. Specifically... Luke chapter 10 and verse 17. And this is when Jesus sends out the 72... ...to essentially do all that he has been doing... ...to heal and cast out demons and to preach the gospel. And they come back so excited because of the great success... ...because the demons actually obeyed their call to be cast out. And look what Jesus says about what they did and what he saw. Luke 10 verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus once again is saying, my ministry is casting down Satan. It's binding him up. And it's not just my ministry that's going to be doing that. I am giving that ministry to you. This is what the church will do. The gospel will get to the ends of the earth. You will come along with me and restore what was fallen in this world. That's the picture that Christ is giving us. This is Christ building his church and proclaiming Satan is bound. So the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That's what Christ is saying here. Do you see the fuel this gives to evangelism? to world missions, do you see how much of an impact it makes? Yes, we know that Christ lived for us, perfectly in our place. He died for us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin in every way, rose from the dead to free us from sin and death. That is wonderful good news. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. But Christ also, when he came, bound Satan from destroying the church, so that through us... God will build his church. Christ will build his church. And what do we see happen? As soon as Jesus ascends, the gospel goes in the book of Acts from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. What do we see throughout the rest of church history? The gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. Think about it. We are here right now because Satan has been bound. And the gospel reached Bakersfield, California. And one day the gospel will reach the Wanchi people, as it did the Yimbi people, and the other nations we're praying for, for our missionaries to go out. This is a guarantee that that will happen. As Christ says in Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And we know that happens because Satan is bound. Then, then the end will come. Then Christ will return. Brothers and sisters, please see the millennium as this guarantee, this assurance that the Great Commission will happen one day, will be completed one day. So we should pray fervently for our friends and our families and our, our co-workers. We should preach the gospel with boldness because we know Satan can't ultimately stand in the way of them being saved. That God will be faithful to save through that preaching. And every time, every time we see a believer, we see someone bow the knee to Jesus, we are seeing, we are seeing proof that Satan is bound. And the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. This is what motivates us to, to go to the hard places, to make the tough decisions, to make incredible sacrifices even to take great risks with our families and even our own lives because we know our efforts are not in vain. Yes, Satan will do his worst. He may kill us, but ultimately the church will never fail because Christ will build his church. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this incredible teaching on the millennium. Pray, Father, you would empower your saints, encourage your saints to preach the gospel boldly. Father, we thank you that we have received the gospel by your gracious, sovereign hand. But Lord, we pray that we would be diligent to pray, diligent to preach, so that your gospel can go to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to know it's not our efforts or our winsomeness or our ability to win people over. It's you building your church. And you have faithfully promised to do it through us. And graciously promised to do it through us. Lord, help us to trust you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.